Hey there, and welcome to the Box Office Watch Podcast, where we keep watch on how much money movies are making and why. This is the show recapping the weekend of May 27th through Memorial Day, May 30th on Monday, uh, 2022. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. I uh, hope everyone is doing well out there. Uh, I know this episode is pretty late in the week, but if you're here in the States, I uh, hope you enjoyed, bladed, hoping that you enjoyed your Memorial Day weekend. Obviously, of course, that pays, plays into a huge role in this week's episode for the box office. And while this episode is later in the week, than, uh, and also while the, why this later episode is later in the week than most, um, I had to wait for the uh, Tuesday, num- the Monday numbers to come out. And then on top of that, uh, I needed to you know still keep, catch up with work uh, from the long weekend. So yeah, uh, anyway, myself, I enjoyed uh, both, you you know, the newer, warmer weather here in New York, uh, with my allergies pretty much gone at this point, thank God. Um, you know, ate out a fair bit at a couple of restaurants in the sun, uh, which is pretty nice, but you know, also spent my time indoors watching the new Top Gun movie, which I'll be talking about uh, my thoughts on Top Gun at the end of the episode. Um, but first, let's get to the numbers. Um, obviously, with the four-day holiday, we can get things a little bit tricky, but I'll try to do my best to call out when I'm talking about three-day totals and when I'm talking about four-day totals. Uh, in first place this weekend is, to the surprise of no one, Top Gun Maverick leading the way with $126.7 million over the three-day weekend in 4,735 theaters, per theater average of $26,760. Uh, including Monday, you get another $33.8 million for a $160 million.5 uh, uh, opening domestically over the four-day weekend. Now, making another 124 over the three-day weekend, um, the three-day opening number for worldwide sits at $215 million. Now, production budgets for this, given COVID delays and unusual cost of productions we'll talk about in a little in a second, uh, puts this one at about $170 million total production, so about a $425 million or so break-even point. Now, those costs are, you know, the fact that, you know, they did not do the, the plane sequences in CG. They actually used U.S. military planes. Um, they apparently were rented out to the filmmakers to the tune of about $11,000 an hour. Um, however, considering all the maintenance and everything that goes into uh, flying the plane for an hour, that's actually fairly cheap. Um, I imagine that you know the the Navy is probably writing off that cost as a marketing expense, given how successful the first Top Gun one was back in the '80s as a recruiting tool for them. Um, now these openings, you know, again, uh, one twenty-six million three day, one sixty million four days, um, is in the range of one hundred five to one hundred forty-five million dollars for the three-day weekend, and one twenty-five to one seventy-seven for the four-day. That box office pros had forecast. So obviously this is a stunning number. Um, you know, one of the biggest we've seen in a while, though obviously not the biggest. Um, Doctor Strange still had a bigger three-day weekend, but there's still a lot driving the success of this film, and I think the longer-term success of this film as well. Word of mouth of this has been outstanding, to say the least. Um, it's the first A-plus cinema score of 2022, um, and on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 97% critics, 99% audience score. Uh, beyond that, the audience, according to the deadline, was fairly diverse. You know, 58% men, 42% women, and notably 55% over 35 years old. Again, this is important since, you know, that particular audience, the older audience, has been somewhat reluctant to come back to theaters aside from James Bond last year. Uh, given this is the sequel to a very iconic 36-year-old film, having an older audience is somewhat to be expected, but it does not seem to be at the exclusion of that younger audience, which I think was the problem with the James Bond Daniel Craig film. Um, you know, the younger audience just didn't connect with his Bond since it's been, he'd been around for 15 years when maybe they were even too young to see the first Bond film. Now, there's also something to be said about the nature of the film be appealing across the political spectrum. Uh, someone p- pulled up a map of the U.S. and, you know, 
Top Gun, again, not the biggest opening of the year so far. It made 68% of what Doctor Strange did over the three-day weekend. So they mapped it out which states, you know, ended up having, uh, you know, better than 68% of Doctor Strange and states where it had less than 68% of Doctor Strange. Uh, the only states uh, in the latter case were basically an underperformed that 68% mark were what you didn't consider to be blue states. Uh, California, New York, Pennsylvania, and much of the Northeast with a touch of Illinois and Indiana and Michigan. The rest of the country, predominantly the South, the Midwest, the mountain regions, um, that generally skew red politically, um, Top Gun overperformed then. There, um, Given that we haven't had what Deadline calls a red state blockbuster since probably American Sniper 2014, uh, there may be something to the fact that, you know, again, an older audience tends to skew conservative, um, you know, uh, you know, growing up in the 80s, you know, that's when Ronald Reagan was was president and all that. Um, I wouldn't, and then obviously be, being, you know, kind of like a, a love fest for the mil- U.S. military, makes no surprise that these generally more conservative-leading states would over-index on uh, Top Gun Maverick. Now, as a result of all of this, you know, the quality of the film, the wide audience appeal, the built-in audience, and good word of mouth, not to mention the wide distribution. This is the widest distributed film ever domestically, uh, at least opening-wise, and the widest for Paramount internationally, worldwide, with 25,000 screens. Um, this one soared to, an, to a number of records. Uh, first off, this is the highest-grossing Memorial Day weekend ever, beating out 2007's Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End, three-day total of $114 million, and a four-day total of $139 million. It's also the fifth highest Monday at the domestic box office of all time, uh, behind Black Panther, Force Awakens, No Way Home, and Endgame, and ahead of Rogue One. Um, And it also sits at number 10 all time for the highest May weekend. Um, It's the only non-Marvel film in the top 10 overall. Um, Now going back to beating Pirates of the Caribbean, um, producer Jerry Bruckheimer, who also produced the Pirates franchise, um, this is actually his second highest film opening ever, behind 2006's Pirates of the Caribbean of Dead Man's Chest, uh, opening three days to $135 million. Uh, for director uh, Joseph Kosinski, uh, who previously was best known for his other 80s sequel, uh, Tron Legacy. Um, this is already his highest grossing film of all time, as Tron Legacy made $172 million domestic total. Um, and of course, the man himself, Tom Cruise, this is his highest opening weekend ever, both domestic and internationally. Surprisingly, you know, he has not had a $100 million opening yet. Um, this is his first you know, film over that mark. Um, actually, it's $100 million over his previous uh, top film, which was War of the War. World's $160 million, um, followed by Miss Impossible Fallout's $61 million. Um, that said, though, this also gives Tom Cruise a number one film in each of the past five decades, which, you know, really the man is not like he's fi- he's over 50 years old. Um, the first of these being Legacy in uh, 1985, followed by Top Gun in 1986. So where does Top Gun go from here? You know, I'll, it'll have beaten the originals 180 million domestic total by the end of this week. Um, you know, a three X multiplier would probably put it at. 378 million domestically. Honestly, though, with how well received this film is, um, and especially based on that really stellar Monday it had, um, it could probably go a lot higher. Um, 3.5x multiplier would put it at maybe 441 million dollars, and then the 4x multiplier would put it at 504 million dollars flat. Um, most people online seem to think, based on this Monday, that you know 450 to 500 million dollar is probably the realistic ending of this domestically. Um, and the solid reputation overseas, despite being a very American-centric film, there's a chance it could end up at a billion dollars, though obviously not guaranteed. Um, and the, there is, of course, a big dinosaur-sized roadblock coming up in Jurassic World Dominion in about two weeks' time. Um, so we'll see after that opens what kind of legs uh, Top Gun Maverick ends up having. Um, 
Now, it'll definitely be a fun summer, though, to keep tabs on where this flies off to, especially if things are to be believed. Tom Cruise is mandating a 120-day theatrical window for his films from Paramount, which, honestly, you should see this on the big screen. Um, it deserves it. But also, you know, obviously, he's he reportedly has a 10% first picture gross cut of the revenue on top of a $12.5 million fee. Um, so, you know, here, it would, if it hits $750 million, people are saying maybe $50 million total domestically or even higher. So, yeah. Um, another fun fact, while the original Ghostbusters beat Top Gun in the year it came out, um, Top Gun Maverick has already surpassed the total of Ghostbusters Afterlife. Um, the original Top Gun also ended up being at the top of Netflix in the past week as people were preparing to see this film and various VOD services as well. Uh, so nice little misboon for Paramount there, which another TIL today. Uh, today I learned that, that the first VHS to ever hit 100, uh, 1 million copies was actually Top Gun. So, um, you know, I wouldn't see, be surprised if, if Paramount is a for a Top Gun 3 at this point, though, you know, obviously I don't think this would happen without Tom Cruise unless they're trying to get one of the younger pilots to kind of take up the mantle, maybe a Paramount Plus series or something, but uh, yeah, uh, we'll see, uh, I think just enjoying the moment for the moment, see how high uh, Top Gun Maverick can fly uh, will be exciting in and of itself. Uh, anyway, moving to the rest of the domestic box office, uh, in second place we have Doctor Strange 2, dropping 50% in its fourth weekend to 16 million in 3,805 theaters, losing about 729 total for per theater average of 4,323. Uh, domestic total sits at 370.4 million as of the three-day weekend. It crossed the 500 million mark overseas with 502.8 million, and now sits at 873 million or so worldwide. Uh, third place, uh, we have another Disney film, actually a new release uh, from 20th Century Fox, the Bob's Burger animated movie, uh, the rare hand-drawn animated film in, in the box office these days. Uh, this one opened to 12.4 million in 3,425 theaters per theater average of 3,625 uh, per theater. Um, over the holiday weekend, it managed to you know get to 14.8 million or so uh, you know over the four days. Um, these numbers were on the top end of what Box Office Pro said forecast, so pretty solid performance given how limited the potential audience for this probably was going to be as a spinoff. Word of mouth is pretty decent. A cinema score, 86 critics. 91 uh, audience on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, reportedly, the budget um, is $60 million, which, I don't know, seems rather high. I mean, the, the South Park and Simpsons had about $20 million um, in their time, so I think that's probably the more realistic numbers given the uh, source of that $60 million seems to not be so suspect, but it's the only one we have at the moment. Uh, going off of that $20 million mark, though, you know, if we say a 2.5x multiplier for Bob's Burger, get about $31 million or so by the end of the run, a bit sort of a hypothetical break, even um, purely in theatrical, um, but I think the real play for them, for Disney, is to get this on one of those streaming services uh, for the Bob's Burgers fans there. In fourth place, Downton Abbey, A New Era, dropped pretty sharply, 64% dropped to $5.7 million uh, in 3,830 theaters, running total of $28.3 million by the end of Sunday in its second weekend. Um, another $41 million overseas, which is pretty solid, puts at $70 million worldwide. Not quite break even on its $40 million budget, but honestly, not bad, especially with that strong overseas numbers. I think what really hurt this one here is that the audience who would come out for Downton Abbey, you know, generally an older audience, uh, probably came out for Top Gun instead. Here's a little bit of cannibalization. 
Uh, rounding out the top five, The Bad Guys hangs in there with a 29% drop down to $4.3 million in 2,944 theaters, losing about 761 theaters total per theater average of $14.89 and a running total of $81.1 million domestic by Sunday. Uh, worldwide, it's made $119 million overseas for about $200 million worldwide. Um, beyond being the de facto kids animated movie for at least a couple more weeks till Lightyear comes out, I think this one probably tops out at about, mm, call it $90 million domestic or so. Uh, outside the top five, again, number six is for however many weeks in a row, uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. At this point, everything, I think, further than this is pure gravy. The digital release comes out next week, June 7th. Um, they dropped 21% this week uh, in week 10 uh, to $2.4 million, which is the first time in its entire one it's dropped below $3 million, uh, which is the 50% mark from its uh, first wide release. Um, it's down to 1,187 theaters, so per the average, again, increased versus last week. Last week it was $1,990. This week is $2,075. Um, and running domestic total of $56.7. million I think is locked at this point. You know, even if it doesn't get there by the VOD release, I'm sure people will still want to see it in theaters. At least a couple people to push it over. Uh, at number seven, Sonic dropped over a thousand theaters in week eight. Makes sense, you know, given it's on Paramount Plus, um, which is where I ended up seeing it. I'll talk about it later at the end of the episode. Also, um, it sits at 185 million domestic, 385 worldwide. But you know, oddly enough, somehow. The Lost City from Paramount, despite being on Paramount Plus for longer than Sonic, um, gained 29% in this, you know, in, in weekend 10 uh, for $2 million flat in about 1,000 theaters or so. Officially crossed the $100 million marks with $102 million by Sunday. So another one added to the list of $100 million grosses for this year. Um, I don't know, maybe the holiday weekend encouraged turnout. Maybe, you know, a, a tropical adventure type film uh, ends up, you know, matches the hot summer mood. I don't know. Um, and then in ninth place, A24's divisive film Men dropped a whopping 64% in week two, which is pretty much dead on arrival for any significant run. Other than that, Fantastic Beasts dropped 1,000 theaters this week in week seven, down to less than 900. Firestarter from Universal in its third weekend dropped a massive 2,400 theaters in a single go, down to less than 1,000. And worth noting, Michael Bay's Ambulance ended its run at seven weeks with 22.3 million total against the 40 million production budget. Definitely a flop. Uh, overall total box office this weekend was 176 million over the three-day weekend, 219 over the four-day. Honestly, I would say this is a pretty good indicator that if we haven't been in it already, I think the box office is pretty much back to normal. Uh, 2019 Memorial Day weekend, we had the opening of Aladdin. I had 181 million total box office over the three-day weekend, but only 213 over the four-day. So we made more in this four-day Memorial Day period than we did pre-pandemic. Um, and against you know, and, and the comparison isn't like a no, nothing film. You know, Aladdin was a serious film. Now, of course, you know it did open to less than Top Gun, um, and this film this weekend was a lot more centralized for Top Gun. Over the three days, about seventy-one point five percent of the box office went to Tom Cruise, while in twenty nineteen, only fifty percent went to Will Smith's Genie. Uh, so that's you know definitely a case where there were just more films, um, you know, making a little bit less in twenty nineteen, but still um, another positive sign. I think that there still is total demand for the box office in general at this point. 
going into this weekend, you know, there aren't many blockbusters of note, uh, probably because no one wants to be caught in the slipstream of, of Top Gun Maverick. The most notable open, I think, is body horror film Crimes of the Future from David Cronenberg, starring Vio Mortensen and Kristen Stewart, distributed by Neon, fresh off of its debut at the Cannes Film Festival. Obviously, it has an, it currently has a 81% from critics on Rotten Tomato, but its body horror nature, I don't think, is going to make it break out all that much beyond the film nerd crowd. Um, Box Office Pros has it open at about $1.3 million total. Uh, looking internationally, not too much aside from Top Gun, uh, dominating worldwide in 62 markets despite being, again, a rather American-centric movie. Um, the UK came in first place with $19.4 million, followed by France with $11.7, Australia with, with $10.7, Japan at $9.7, and Brazil coming in fifth overseas $5.3 million. Notably, it did not open in Korea, which apparently is a big cruise market, their release date being t- June 23rd. Instead, their local film, The Roundup, hit $54.7 million after two weekends. Um, speaking of local films, Indonesian horror film KKN and the Pesa Pinari, uh, based on a popular online story, has become the third highest grossing film in the country of all time, behind Infinity, ahead of Infinity War with $8.2 million, $2 million, I think US dollars to date, uh, behind only Endgame and uh, Spider-Man No Way Home. Uh, back to Korea, though, since this episode is coming about later in the week, we do have some news about Korea's early openings of Jurassic World Dominion this past Wednesday. Um, it looks like it's the fir- the opening day of $6 million US dollars is the fourth highest single-day opening of all time uh, in Korea behind Jurassic World Fallen Kingdoms, Endgame, and a local film called Along with the Gods 2, uh, which bodes well for at least for the international appeal of Jurassic World Dominion. Uh, also out of Korea, we have some big wins at the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, while neither of their two big hopefuls took the top prize, the Palme d'Or, um, they still walk away with some prizes. Hirokazu Koreeda's Broker was able to give Song Kang-ho a Best Actor Award, and then Park Chan-wook's Decision to Leave nabbed him at the Best Director Award. Um, both of these films, produced by CJ Entertainment, the company behind Parasite, um, were picked up for a Western release, um, Neon and Mubi respectively, as we previously reported, so you can look forward to seeing those stateside. Um, the top one of the festival, Ruben Ostlund's satire of the wealthy Triangle of Sadness, was picked up earlier in the festival by Neon as well. So this makes them three for three in recent years for getting the Palme d'Or winner. And likely, and so we'll just have to see if this one ends up more like Titan or like Parasite in terms of box office. Uh, in second place, uh, the Grand Prix Awards was actually tied between two films, uh, The Belgian Drama Closed by Lucas Duno, uh, Don't and American Romantic Thriller Stars at Noon by Cleo Dennis. Uh, Close was picked up by A24 at the festival, while Stars at Noon had been in A24's pocket since 2020. Uh, Best Actress Award went to Zara Amir Ebrahimi, the lead of the Persian-language film Holy Spider. That was picked up by Utopia, probably best known for distributing last year's Siva Baby. Um, the jury gave also two jury awards, uh, Eight Mountains from Italy, which didn't get a distributor, and an EO by uh, Jerzy Skolmowinski, uh, a Polish film about the life of a donkey. Um, that one was picked up by Said Sowanjanis, who are distributors for the Oscar winner Drive My Car, which is pretty exciting. Um, and then also picked up by Said Sowanjanis was the 75th anniversary prize winner Tori and Lokita from Belgium by Jean-Pierre and uh, Luc Dardenne. Um, the only film out of Cannes that I'm really waiting to hear distribution for stateside is Plan 75, a Japanese film starring a Filipino care worker um, that played in the Uncertain Regard category. Um, so far, it has deals for various international countries, but not nothing yet stateside. 
Uh, Chinese box office stole the dumps to the point where outlets like Variety and sets aren't even doing weekly write-ups on them anymore. Uh, Top Gun was banned there, um, probably due to being a soft U.S. military propaganda machine piece, um, which meant that the Jap- Japanese and Taiwanese patches on Maverick's jacket were restored in the final film after some initial outcry in the trailers. Um, as far as box office, the biggest film this week was a Doraemon film from Japan, made only about $3 million total. Now, we do have Jurassic World Dominion coming uh, on the 10th, uh, which will be a big test uh, for the Chinese market to see if they've recovered at all. Um, really, I think the case right now in the Chinese market is that the, there just simply isn't really any uh, product out there for people to, to bother going to the theaters with. Um, even if, you know, they're st- slowly starting to recover from lockdowns, I think Shanghai is not going to be locked down anymore. Um, but still, you know, it's still, I think, a, a question of content. And China blocking out Western content for the most part is, is definitely not helping there. Um, and speaking of that, it looks, you know, uh, allegedly China has, they have banned Lightyear, um, the Pixar film, as well as Dream uh, Illuminations Minions 2 from coming to China. Now, Lightyear, we kind of saw coming. There's apparently an LGBT couple in the movie, so that's a no-no over in China. Uh, meanwhile, Minions is a bit of a weirder reason why they'd ban that. Uh, allegedly, there's one of the bad guys has something that looks like a Chinese dragon or something, um, which, you know, is, is, you know, maybe they're just being too sensitive. I don't know. It's reaching for straws at this point, and I think at this point, it's really just a case of uh, China wanting to just lock out Western entertainment as much as possible. Um, beyond the numbers, there's some other headlines to talk about real quickly. Um, I missed this a couple of weeks back, but it looks like uh, Sony's Bullet Train got pushed back from its late July release date to August 5th. Um, now putting it up against Easter Sunday from Universal and Jokoi and Bodies, Bodies, Bodies from A24. Um, previously, Paramount's Secret Headquarters, a superhero film starring Owen Wilson, was set to come out in theaters on August 5th also, but it looks like that's been pushed back to be a Paramount Plus only film. Um, I assume they don't want to compete against Bullet Train, but I'm not sure why they just don't push it back until later uh, in the year. They don't have much else after the summer. Um, best acclamation I can think of is that DC films in the fall, uh, you know, being superhero films, make this alternate superhero story seem comparably weak. You know, maybe it hasn't been testing well in test audiences. Uh, either way, I think Paramount lately has earned their trust uh, just with how they've handled the box office, you know, between Sonic, Lost City, uh, Scream, Jackass, uh, and of course Top Gun. I don't think, you know, I, I think it, they, they have a sense of what will and won't work theatrically at this point. Uh, over on Warner's side, you know, longtime Warner uh, Warner executive Toby Emmerich uh, has, is stepping down uh, uh, as the Mo- Warner Brothers motion picture chairman. Um, while not fully unexpected, you know, given the recent merger, um, it's still a bit weird to think about. I think apparently he was being offered you know, a new position in the organization overseeing animation in DC, um, which, you know, it looks like he turned down. Um, in any case, he's going to be replaced by Michael DeLuca and Pamela Abdi, who are the uh, co-chairs of, the, who are going to be co-chairs of the Warner Brothers Picture Group uh, once they officially leave MGM when their uh, contract ends in summer, you know, and, uh, and with the Amazon acquisition and everything finishing up. Um, you know, that being said, Emmerich isn't going to be anywhere, though. Um, he's apparently receiving a production deal from Warner Brothers, which, you know, given his tenure as a producer at Warner Brothers and a few, you know, executive production credits under his belt, um, not really that surprising that they don't want to lose him. Um, now, it may have been a while since we talked about MoviePass and whatever they've been up to, but uh, to their credit, they did kind of revolutionize the idea of loyalty programs uh, for movie theater chains. Um, this week, Cinemark's own loyalty program hit a million members um, after about four years, which I think is a milestone worth celebrating. 
Now, while this is not strictly box office related, you know, obviously you've seen this in the news for the past month and a half. Um, and this, I am technically an entertainment news podcast, so I guess I'm legally obligated to talk about this. Um, the Johnny Depp Amber Heard defamation case came to a conclusion this past week. Um, you've probably seen the details by now, but the long and short of it is that Johnny Depp won all his claims against Amber Heard for defamation, giving him $15 million in total damages, uh, reduced to just over $10 million due to various caps on punitive damages. Uh, meanwhile, Amber Heard lost on all but one of her claims of defamation, um, which the jury gave her $2 million in damages for that one case of uh, defamation uh, by his lawyer. Um, this, this led out to Depp being owed about $8 million or so total in damages. Now, given that Amber Heard's net worth is about $8 million total, uh, she's in deep trouble, I think. Uh, apparently, she wants to appeal and all that, but I think the more interesting question for this podcast, rather than all the legal mumbo-jumbo, which I'm sure all of you are tired of hearing at this point, is where do the stars go from here moving forward? Um, obviously, on Johnny Depp's side, you know, he kind of had his public perception against him had not been great, um, but it's kind of been rehabilitated during the trial, um, which I think for him was kind of like the bigger point more than anything else. Um, you know, but, you know, the, the being canceled for a period led to him losing his role in Fantastic Beasts and, you know, being soft banned from Disney for the Pirates franchise. So the question is, will he make his return to Hollywood or does he just want to play rock music now? Um, apparently, Robert Downey Jr. wants to help him out and have him cast as someone coming up in the new Sherlock Holmes film. So that would be an interesting uh, return to form, I think, for Johnny up. Um, on the other hand, you know, uh, Amber Heard's reputation has taken a dive after being exposed as a lying abuser. Um, she does feature in the upcoming Aquaman 2 film, but that's not until spring of uh, 2023, so I think more than enough time for Warner Brothers to figure out a way to maybe um, remove her from the edit or minimize her at the very least, or if they want to go super extreme, uh, CG replace her with somebody a la Tick Tignataro in Army of the Dead. Um, who knows? Um, but, you know, I, I doubt that those season invited back for any future DC projects or any Warner Brothers project in general. I imagine most producers and directors won't want to be associated with her. So it's going to be a real tricky question of her how she's going to earn enough money to pay back the 8 million COs if no one wants to hire her to work. Um, you know, if, if another kind of similar recent example is uh, Kevin Spacey, you know, obviously being outed as a, as a, as a sexual uh, abuser, um, in his time, you know, he is basically canceled by most of Hollywood, but apparently he's sewing up in films here and there that basically look super amateur directed DVD, and it's just kind of what he has to do in order to, like, make a paycheck, basically. So I imagine maybe that might be an option for, option for Amber Heard if her appeal doesn't go her way. But anyway, that's enough Amber Heard and, and Johnny Depp for this podcast. On a bit of a lighter note to end things off before my movie reviews, apparently it was Morbin time on Twitch when uh, somebody was streaming the entire Morbius film for, like, a week straight um, with peak viewership of 10,000 viewers. How it went on undetected for so long, I don't know, but hey, I think we could all use a little, a little laugh and a little bit more of in time right now. Um, to wrap things up for this, so again, here are my quick thoughts on Top Gun Maverick as well as Sonic the Hedgehog. Um, uh, it's, this is what I've been watching, and of course, we do have spoilers ahead, so if you haven't seen them and you want to go in blind, um, feel free to set up the podcast now, otherwise, listen ahead. So first up, Sonic the Hedgehog 2, the original uh, that was actually one of the, you know, last handful of movies I think I saw pre-pandemic. Um, I think I gave that out 3 out of 5, you know, definitely a lot of nostalgia in there. Definitely a surprisingly better story than you'd expect. And of course, you know, kind of this, the meta story of him recovering from the, uh, you know, the, the awful character design of the original Sonic and, and actually looking good. Um, you know, I think that was that was a, 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 a decent way to pass time, I think, in the first film. Um, now, the second film I watched on Paramount Plus over two sessions, you know, about half 
half the movie eats. It was a little bit longer than I think it could have been. There probably was uh, maybe 20 minutes you could have cut out here or there. Um, but this one was loads of fun. Still a great way to pass the time. You know, definitely a kid's movie. I think one thing that's kind of thrown me off is that they keep on characterizing Sonic as like a kid, um, which I guess makes sense in the movie. But his voice, his mannerisms, and just... I mean, also his entire history, he's like a more of an edgy teen to me than like a, an, a, a young kid learning his place in the world. So that seemed a little bit off to me characterization-wise, but, um, you know, and at other moments, I think I was kind of taken out of it when I realized, hey, this sequence, like, there's one sequence he's snowboarding down the hill. It's like, they probably just CG'd all of this, right? Like, all the background, the characters, and all the robots flying around. Like, that's all CG. So this is basically an animated movie, right? I mean, yes, obviously, there are live-action parts, especially when they interact. But still, I mean, you know, that... Is this really a live-action movie? But those distractions aside, uh, I mean, Ben Swartz as Sonic and his classic sass has the right amount of sass, I think. Um, you know, Idris Elba as Knuckles really gives us his all. Um, and, of course, Jim Carrey is, is, is slays it as usual. I can't wait to see more of him in the future. Um, now, the final sequence that, that spoilers is basically an Eggman mech versus the, the team. Felt very Attack on Titan, if you've seen the anime. Um, but, you know, the re reveal of, of Super Sonic in the end, my nine-year-old self was, was basically freaking out. Um, and, you know, there's a post credit scene with Shadow. You know, I'm all in on Sonic 3 at this point. Overall, again, nothing nothing too extraordinary, but definitely competently enjoyable period way to, to pass the time. Um, and I can definitely see why this this earned the highest grossing video game film of all time. It, the story, you know, there are some couple of loose ends here and there, and, you know, it definitely kind of jumps from place to place. But this is all the callbacks and nostalgia, I think. is This is, this is video game movies done right. Um, moving to Top Gun Maverick, um, so, you know, I saw the original Top Gun last year at a drive-in theater here in New York City, um, and, and, you know, we did get rained on, but luckily there was a set we could hide out in, and I think I described it back then that it's basically just pure 80s vibes, you know, the story was kind of whatever, um, but the air fighting, the iconography, the soundtrack, you know, more than saved this one. Um, now, the, this Top Gun, Top Gun Maverick, surpassed the film in pretty much every way, but it also stayed true to the original and what made the original great. You know, there's kind of a romance in the original films about this idea of these fighter pilots being the best of the best and almost like a lonely existence where only they and their peers will understand what that life is like. That kind of cowboy mentality is kind of present here in, in the Western kind of way. An early reference on that, you know, pilots may or may not be needed in an age of drones, but, you know, Maverick, a.k.a. Tom Cruise, doesn't want to that doesn't want to let that day happen. He'll fight it as long as he can. Now that could be a broader metaphor, you know, beyond just what it is on the page of two. I think different elements of movie making here. You know, one is you know saying that hey, everything is made out of CG now, special effects, practical filming has gone by the wayside, it's dying art. And there's also another one where you know an individual's charisma can carry a film as opposed to you know a a, a studio system like Marvel would plug in pieced movies and no one's all that important. Uh, speaking first to the latter, this. This one does lean very heavily on, on Cruise as Maverick, perhaps to the point of really marginalizing a lot of the other new pilots. I could barely remember who everyone was. Um, I mean, you had, what's it, Bob the Nerd, you had Phoenix, uh, the only girl who really got any uh, lines, um, you had Hangman, you know, the cocky jerk, and of course Rooster, who's kind of like, I guess, the secondary, the deuteragonist at this point. But everyone else kind of just like faded into the black background um, to me. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, it, it works, right? I mean, I think a film that, that leaned more into those... There is a story, I think, about, about those characters, but I think what made this film work really was Tom Cruise and his charisma as Maverick. Um, and, you know, it's not just his good looks. It's not just his Maverick attitude, right? It, he, he has some real acting chops. I think this might be his best acting performance in a while. You know, 
they they do give they do give enough throughout the film to people so that people who hadn't seen the original Top Gun understand you know the beats about Goose's death and all that um, and his relationship with uh, with with Maverick and then his relationship with Rooster afterwards. Um, but the screenplay really does go there in terms of exploring something these emotions out of Maverick of of you know the, the whole idea of aging up and needing to let go of the past and finding his place and what he wants to do in the world. You know you would you get the kind of sense that he's really acting. And in a way that you wouldn't get it out of maybe a Mission Impossible film, for example. Uh, one highlight here is Cruz's interaction with Val Kilmer's character of Iceman. Um, you know, and and you know, and and that was like a really highlight, I think, of this emotional acting. Um, now, to the former, you know, the bit about you know CG versus practical effects. Uh, just reading up on the extended cast and all the training they had to do to actually fly in a military grade jet, not pilot themselves, but fly in the back seat, and how they filmed all the sequences uh, with special IMAX cameras that the actors themselves had to operate, turn on, turn off, make sure the lighting was, was good, make sure they're flying in the right direction, and then, you know, make sure they're not passing out when they're pulling these Gs. I mean, you know, talk about, right, feeling like you're in the... Like, first off, that's impressive in and of itself, but talk about feeling like you're in the cockpit when you're watching it on the big screen, right? Like, I... Like there was this practice. Run. This is one point in the movie where, where Maverick does this practice run uh, in two minutes, and you know it's a pivotal part. It's been explained like why this is so important that that they, he makes this two minute time, and you just feel. I felt myself like sinking into the seats, pushing back into the seat, feeling all tense. Like is he gonna make it? Like this anticipation, right? And it's obviously he's going to make it, right? But it's, it's still you felt you feel the buzz the buzz of the engine. You feel every like time he switches and and, and changes direction, right? Every tailpin turn he makes. Um, I was like grasping my hand my wife's hand next to me as we were watching this not to mention later on they actually get sent into actual combat um and you don't know like are they gonna make it out alive right he, he's doing his best um maybe and you don't know you don't you legitimately don't know like is he going to sacrifice himself is he going to make it out all right um is he going to redeem himself through sacrifice or is someone going to sacrifice them for him i mean wow they they did a good job of and not only that you know it could get very technical obviously right like this is joke that like real real uh pilots are, are a bunch of nerds like who, who go into like flight performances and flight calculations but like I mean they did a good job of like showing like hey all of these technical things that they're trying to accomplish us as as lay people would not understand it in a pilot why it's so impressive but they show it on screen how impressive it is and then they show why and then they lay out why it's important they get to this point so that they build up to this final moment which kind of plays out and you understand oh my god they pulled it off I can't believe they did that Add on to that that you understand that everything they did on screen was actually flying as it was supposed to be. That's just, wow. Um, I, I really want to go back and, and watch this again. Maybe on the true IMAX screen on the Lincoln Center, just feel that tension in my chest again. And yeah, I, I will say, you know, there is, uh, you know, I will say there is, if there's one criticism, again, that whole theme of, you know, learning to let go of the past to some degree. It's a little bit meta, maybe, uh, my take, but, you know, the fact that uh, this is a 36-year-old sequel um, to a franchise that Paramount cannot let go is kind of ironic. Um, but other than that, I mean, the, the end product is so good and such an enjoyable summer blockbuster. I'm honestly not complaining. Honestly, I think this is probably going to make it into my top 10 enjoyed films of the year, and depending on the, what I rest for the rest of the year, possibly into my top 10 technical films of the year. I wouldn't be surprised to see this Oscar season, honestly, not just for Lady Gaga's original song, but even sound, editing, maybe cinematography, uh, production. Overall, four out of five. 
Uh, and with that, that's a wrap for this episode. Uh, suit me ideas for what else I should cover via email at boxofficewalkpodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at BOWatchPodcast. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play. Make sure you subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend, any of that helps. Support us on Patreon. Links to all that will be in our show notes. Numbers in the show come from dnumbers.com. Intro and outro music from Kevin MacLeod. His stuff is a composite that formerly the IO. Editing production by Ninja Boy Media. Until next time, this has been the Box Office Watch Podcast. And remember, our watch goes on. Yeah.